Welcome to Radio MVP Sports Podcast, episode 92 of the Sports Podcast. Hi, everyone. I'm Tim, along with Anthony. And we're recording on the phone to, to make it a little easier this time of the year. It's been a, oh, close to two weeks since last time we had a chance to talk, but a lot has transpired since then. And we're just uh, days away from the Ohio State Buckeye Clemson uh, semifinal matchup. Uh, Anthony, what's going on with you, my friend? Oh, not too much. It's uh, nice to get back together after the holiday. Hope everybody had a good holiday yesterday. And uh, yeah, it's it, it's amazing. The last time we talked, we were just uh, finishing and breaking down Ohio State's comfort behind win over Wisconsin, and now just two days away, uh, they play Clemson, like you mentioned, in the College Bowl Playoff semifinal in the Fiesta Bowl. So. Um, it's time to get geared back up and uh, finally uh, um, delve deeper into Ohio State, something we have not done this year because of their complete dominance. Yeah, uh, we've talked about them sporadically throughout the yeah. season, to be quite honest, because like you mentioned, they've just dominated. Obviously, we got excited towards the end of the season when they played mm-hmm. Penn State and uh, obviously Michigan and a few, you know, the Big Ten championship game, but yes. uh, they have rolled this season, and they did get the numbers two seed, as everyone knows. Uh, they came into that week, uh, in the championship weekend, at number one seed, according to the pools ahead of time, mm-hmm. but I can tell everyone it doesn't matter as long as you're in the top four, and in the end, the only pool that matters is the final pool. So they made right. the top four, and they get to play Clemson. So Clemson comes in, uh, will take on the Buckeyes. They're a number three of the four teams. And uh, the last time these two teams met was in 2016. And Clemson uh, shut out the Buckeyes 31 to nothing. Yeah, they, it was uh, it was a complete domination. Ohio State actually drove down the field um, their first two, two drives of the game and missed field goals. And then after that, it just fouled out of control. J.T. Barrett wasn't 100%. Um, you know, and I, it just didn't seem like Ohio State was very bland and vanilla on offense, uh, something that was uncommon uh, during the Urban Meyer era, a bland offense. They just were very predictable and uh, couldn't stretch the field. However, uh, these Buckeyes can stretch the field um, with Justin Fields at quarterback and uh arguably a top three receiving core in college football. Um, and you could even say uh, these two teams, Clemson and Ohio State, have the two best receiving cores in the country. Uh, they yeah, are fast, they're athletic, and uh, they can make plays. No, I agree with you. And just to put more perspective of what you're talking about, uh, you know, Chris Olave, who is the uh, yes. wide receiver for the, the Buckeyes, was a junior in high school when the last time these two teams played on the field. Yeah. And that yeah. just tells you everything you know about how it changes over. And I don't want to take anything away from uh, Clemson and what they achieved two years ago because that may have been the best Clemson team uh, in, that, in the Dabo era. Simple as that. Uh, that was just a dominating football program uh, those two years in 16 and 17, in my mind. And uh, that was just who they were. And, you know, obviously 18 and 19 are different stories for them. And yeah. And we go forward, but yeah, I think it's going to be a great matchup, and you know, it's going to be interesting to see. You know, you got like Olave, you know, taking mm-hmm. on you know like a K. Ron Wallace in defensive backfield for the uh, the Tigers. It's it's going to be interesting uh, some of the matchups, and like you said, Fields, you know, who finished third in the Heisman Trophy you know contest and uh, has led the Buckeyes as a transfer out of Georgia and has done a phenomenal job this year, you know, and really transforming the offense. And then you look at, you know, what J.K. Dobbins has brought to this team and, uh, you know, what his performance. And I honestly do believe that first quarter uh, is going to be interesting. Uh, yeah, the Buckeyes defense and the Buckeyes offense and see how they, they handle uh, the Tigers going forward because I do believe this is going to be uh, similar to the game uh, you go back to the national championship run where mm-hmm. Ohio State really kind of punched Alabama in the nose right away. Yep. 
and and kept the pressure on throughout the ball game. I think that's the same type of scenario that we may see in this game here coming up on uh, Saturday. Yeah, it's going to be interesting. Um, first of all, on the uh, offensive side for Ohio State, we all know J.K. Dobbins, and uh, you mentioned Chris Olave, K.J. Hill, um, Benjamin Victor, and the tight ends, Record and Farrell. Um, they're dynamic playmakers. However, uh, Fields' uh, meniscus injury uh, says he's 80 to 85%. Um, you know, we've seen him with the brace on the last couple of games. Uh, it'll be interesting to see if he has that same mobility because against a constant defensive front that will uh, put pressure on you from the start, uh, the legs of Justin Fields will be as important if not maybe more important um, than uh, the passing game. And this could be a game where we maybe see Ryan Day unleash the uh, RPO. And anybody that's watched Ohio State the last three or four years, um, you, you know, you, you can even go back to the uh, national championship year uh, Cardell Jones didn't run the ball design runs a lot. Um, he made plays when uh, the plays broke down, and I think that's going to be big for Fields. If he can make the plays third and five, scramble for a first down, or uh, pick up a big uh, chunk play with his legs, you know, I don't think he needs to run the ball 25, 30 times a game, uh, but I do believe he's going to have to uh, make a couple plays with his legs um, to keep the Clemson defensive front off. Um, and I think on the defensive end, um, if Ohio State can pressure Trevor Lawrence from up the middle, um, and then that that would in turn free up a Chase Young later in the game to do what Chase Young does. So you got to imagine uh, Clemson's going to double-team him to begin the game. And all it's going to depend on if Ohio State's linebackers, I believe, can hang up with the speed of Ross and Higgins um, and each end of the backfield. Clemson will try to do what Ohio State has done to teams and crossing routes and then off those uh, hit the deep ball. I don't think Clemson's seen a defensive backfield like Ohio State's. Um, in turn, I don't think Ohio State has seen uh, the offensive playmakers that Clemson has outside. So uh, it's going to be a lot of feeling out, uh, like you mentioned, in the first quarter. Yeah, and really I think you want to have a barometer going into the game. Watch J.K. Dobbins, exactly how yep. how successful he is early on in the ball game. I think he's going to touch the ball even more than normal in this yeah, game. Exactly. through the pass or just running the ball. I mean, when you have a player who has 1,800 yards rushing and 20 touchdowns mm-hmm. and is averaging over six yards a carry, uh, you got to feed him. And yep, that's exactly. what I'm sure Ryan Day and I'm sure Clemson already knows. But when you start feeding him, it opens up the other parts of the game where they are going to be throwing the ball. And this offense under Day is a lot different than it was in 2016. Yeah, with J.K. Rob or are you saying with with Barnett and uh, that that school? You know, unfortunately, like you said, Barnett was kind of banged up and he was limited, and you know that was just kind of a really a bad matchup. And uh, you know, we've seen how good Clemson was in 2016, but you know, in 2019, it's totally different, and we'll see exactly uh, how this all works out. And I'm excited about the game. Uh, a lot of people were upset that this had to happen. That you know they get the two-three matchup instead of the one-four, not getting Oklahoma opening game. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, there's no question of the four. Oklahoma's the you know the poor sister of the of the group. Uh, a good team, maybe just not a superior team. The other three, I think everyone believes and can see them as a national champion. Yeah, uh, and, uh, the one on the outside looking in of those four teams is Oklahoma. But as everyone knows, on any giving uh, football field on a Saturday night, 
things can change in a heartbeat. Yeah, and I think we'll see, uh, we'll see what happens. I mean, obviously, uh, I think everyone expects LSU to come through that ball game, but stranger things have happened in the world of sports. Is all I'm saying. Yeah, um, Oklahoma losing uh, three players due to suspension um, is definitely going to hurt their chances even more. Uh, they were uh, heavily uh, decided underdogs going into the game, and now with the three players missing the game, um, that's a lot to ask for playing against an offense. And LSU, that might not have uh, their most important player in Clyde Edwards-Alaire, uh, the running back, who is Joe Burrow's um, safety valve out of the backfield who makes big plays. So uh, it's going to be a lot of Anytime these games, it's going to be a guy you didn't expect um, to come up and have a great game. Ohio State and Cardell Jones, the three-game run he had, uh, to attack of Alola in the second half, and their win against Georgia a couple years ago. Um, Hunter Renfro, who's now playing really well in the NFL with the Raiders, um, his game-running touchdown to beat Alabama a couple years ago, uh, the, game, the game after they beat Ohio State. So... Um, Tim, to me, if Ohio State is going to win uh, not only this game but advance on and win the national championship for the second time in five years, uh, J.K. Dobbins is probably going to have to have a similar run that Ezekiel Elliott had uh, for the Buckeyes in 2014. I think, um, I think that uh, I have never seen a, a running back have this this kind of chip on his shoulder in a long time. We always knew Dobbins was a great player, but he is running with a massive chip on his shoulder. And I always say a bigger chip on his shoulder than uh, Zeke had uh, for the Buckeyes that year. Yeah, there's no question about it. It's going to be about which team is, you know, makes the plays. I know it sounds yep. stupid to say that, and it's kind of cliche, but in the end, it's going to be That's what it comes you know, down to. It's, it's a man-on-man type scenario. And yep. I look at their Ohio State offensive line. I believe in them. I believe in their skill sets, although on the outside as receivers. And I believe in Dobbins. And you top that off with a quarterback who mm-hmm. has shown why he was one of the top quarterbacks, you know, wanted out of high school a few years back and uh, had landed now at Ohio State. Well, just kind of. I mean, I think it's going to be a good ball game, but I'm, my gut feeling is Ohio State by 10. I know that's a big by number, 10. but, yeah. Wow. I think in the second half, Ohio State takes over, and in the fourth quarter, they're going to score a, a, a touchdown that's going to put this game out of reach. I really think it's going to make it a two-score game. I, it's just a gut feeling. I can't prove that. I, have, I can't tell you how it's going to happen. I think it will be a tight game most of the game. I think it, it won't shock me if it goes back and forth in the first two quarters. Mm-hmm. But I think in the second half, Ohio State takes a lead. They nurse that lead, and early in the fourth quarter or sometime in the first seven minutes of the, of the fourth quarter, they're going to get into the end zone. They'll extend that lead. And that, to me, will be the difference in, in, the, uh, in the ball game. Yeah, I definitely think um... – Clemson's defensive line is not as good or as um, dominant as last year's. So if Ohio State's offensive line can hang in there, uh, they had a problem protecting fields in the first half of the Wisconsin game of the Big Ten Championship. If the Buckeyes early on can prove that they can protect fields, uh, I think you're right. I think Ohio State can wear down Clemson. Um, to me, Tim, it's going to depend on if Ohio State's defensive backs for 60 minutes can, can match up against Clemson's uh, receivers out wide. Yeah. So I, I think it's, it's going to be a big part of the game. There's no question about that. Yeah. Yeah, I completely agree. I think um, if Ohio State can hold their own up front offensively and um, the secondary can match up with Clemson's receivers, you know, they don't even need to be great. They need to be good because uh, Chase Young 
you've got to get the feeling Young is going to have a game where he just breaks through and has two or three sacks. Uh, he's had a kind of quiet game the last couple of games, um, and he's too good of a football player to keep down for uh, this many games. No question about it. I'm looking forward to Saturday night's game. And to turn the page to the NFL real quickly here, uh, the Brown season is officially over, and officially over a couple weeks ago, unofficially a couple weeks ago, and yeah. now officially has ended. And you're looking at the 10th consecutive year of a non-winning team for the for the Cleveland Browns. Best they could be is seven and nine this year. Uh, six and ten is a possibility. I think seven and nine is more realistic. They should yep. be able to, as long as they're motivated enough to play. Exactly. This is a motivation. Uh, this is a no, this is a non-motivated game for both teams. Yep. There's really no other than pride for Cincinnati, who's basically locked up to number one pick. So it doesn't matter yeah, if they, they win have. or lose. So on that on that level, they have every every expectation or every uh, need to try to win a ball game to get two wins on the season. In the same vein, the Browns, win or lose, it, it's not going to change this season and how people feel about it. They may feel better about having a win to end the season, you know, going into the offseason, you mm-hmm. know, just kind of a, a good, feel-good moment, especially for the fans. But truth of the matter, win or lose, I just honestly cannot believe that Freddie's going to survive. No, uh, I think no, I, the last three weeks – has borne out to what we were talking all season long before the season is, how will he handle managing the entire year, and how will he grow with this team as the season uh, goes? And I just I haven't seen that growth. Matter of fact, I, I think we've seen regression at the head coach yeah. level, especially when it came to time management and making decisions. And uh, the Baltimore game proved that out in the last two minutes of the first half. We, you legitimately could have been up 6 nothing going into halftime. Did not happen. They take the lead 7-6, and he throws the ball three straight times with a minute 18 left in the half. You punt the ball away, and they score right before half, and you're down 14-6, and the game is, is basically over from that point on. And Yeah, once that the Browns got down 14-6. Yeah, yeah, that to me just it. was the whole game. Yeah, it's... Um, from an outsider's perspective, it is mind-boggling to me how you don't run the ball 40 times combined between Chubb and Hunt. I, it's absolutely mind-boggling how you don't... Uh, no, I, I agree with you. You're almost you at a loss of work because each week, each week you think, okay, maybe this is going to be the game where they start, you know, focusing on the run. You know... You look back at every Super Bowl champion the last 10 years, Tim, and they all can run the ball. You know, the Patriots don't run it a ton, but last week they, when the Patriots need to run the ball, they run the ball 35, 40 times a game. They don't care. And they got one of the best quarterbacks of all time. Well, let's put it in perspective here. Let, Let me put it this way. J.K. Dobbins has rushed the ball 283 times this season for the Buckeyes yes. in 13 games. That's just about 22 carries a ball game. Chubbs doesn't even get the ball 22 times each game. And, and he's leaving the NFL in rushing. So that tells you the problem that you have. I agree with you 100%. Yep. And it's just time management issues that they've had all season long at the end of pass. There are, there's nothing wrong going down at half seven to six, knowing no. that you're getting the ball the first to the second half, and you're going to have an opportunity to do something. But that's not what they've done. You know, they, he's made so many errors. Uh, I just don't see how he could survive. It's just not possible. No, I don't. I, um, I don't believe that Freddie Kitchens can survive. I think um, the only way Freddie Kitchens survives is if uh, – Haslam and Dorothy are too stubborn and too hard-headed to admit we made a mistake. Um, and, Tim, we saw that with my Denver Broncos um, where John Elway 
after uh, Vance Joseph's first year, which was um, awful, that he was too sovereign and too hard-headed to admit, hey, I made a mistake. And then finally, after his second year, um, Elway did fire him and admit that he made a mistake. Uh, It's time for everybody in the Browns front office to say, you know what? We made a mistake. We got to fix things. And um, this is the way you fix things because I don't believe Beckham and I don't believe Landry won out now. But say you keep Kitchens one more year and say you start out two and four, one and five. Then you're going to lose them completely and you're going to lose not one but two great players. Yeah, I think he's lost the team already. Yes. Um, I think he's lost the team. Especially the skill set players. And I think he's even lost his quarterback, who yeah, won't come out and throw him underneath either. the bus, even though he's thrown everybody else under the bus during the season. Uh, I think he even has been noncommittal going forward. And there are options for this football team going forward. There really are. And just as many years everyone talked about, they had to find a quarterback to settle uh-huh. on. Well, like it or not, they found a quarterback to settle on. Yes, you had a regressed year in 2019 in Baker Mayfield, but he's not going nowhere. He will be your quarterback next season going forward, whoever coaches this team. The question you have to ask is who's coaching this team and how do you make Baker Mayfield a better player and using the talents that are in front of him. Now, obviously, the offensive line needs addressed, and I don't care what coach you are, that's going to be a big issue going forward is finding players that come in and be your right tackle and your left tackle and your right guard and left guard and you know to go with the center that you have and moving forward. It may be two new players on that offensive line next year to start the season, but that will be a huge improvement hopefully going forward and give you depth on this team that they haven't had on the offensive line in many years, and I think that will be interesting. Now, when you're talking about what coaches are available going forward, you know, I've talked about this before, and I'll say it again. I'm still a firm believer that if Urban Meyer is ever going to make a jump to the NFL, it has to be now. Yes. Uh, uh, He either has, you know, in my opinion, three choices in front of him, and that is stay retired and be very happy with, what his arrangement is with Ohio State, being, you know, a part of the university going forward. B, go back to the collegiate ranks and take a job that you just left your dream job from. Or C, pursue the NFL for the first time in your life and and see if you can translate what you have done your entire career at the highest level. And if that's the case... I still believe the Browns have to look into it. And that's, you know, he has been number one on my target list for the last, well, all season long, quite honest with you. And then, obviously, Mike McCarthy is someone you have to talk to. Rivera, very well, maybe. I'm not 100% in that bag. Uh, I'm not saying you can't have a defensive coach as your head coach. Uh, Especially, it all depends on who he brings in as his offensive coaches in situations like that and what you're going to do to how you're going to be able to handle those situations. I honestly think if the Browns are going to hire another head coach, it will be an offensive coach going forward. Um, So, you know, McCarthy's very high on that list in my mind, and and Urban Meyer. And quite honestly, as you know as I know, the interview process in the NFL is not necessarily what your plans are. It's who you can bring with you to fill out your your organization as coaching staff and your scouting staff and everything that goes forward, your strength and conditioning and everything that is part of a football team. And, you know, what is your vision for this team for the next five years? And how do you plan on going forward? And that was, I think, the biggest handicap that Kitchen had this past year. And he had no mentor with him. I mean, that was kind of on John Dorsey, not finding somebody that he could lean on throughout the season. You look at young coaches. Most of them will have some type of veteran coach who was a head coach somewhere along the line 
for multiple years with them to at least someone to listen and to bounce ideas off of and who can tell you about situations that they were in to share experiences. I mean, Kitchen was flying blind a lot of ways as a head coach for the first time in the NFL and a guy who, quite honestly, never had more than four players to be responsible up until last season. And last season, mm-hmm. it was an offensive coordinator on a team that had a great quarterback coach. And this is different, though. And now that you don't have that. So it'll be interesting going forward to see how they handle all this. And I, I, I just personally, I, I want to see a change. I hate doing it to Baker Mayfield being his fourth head coach in three seasons. But you have to do that. You can't do what Haslam did with Jackson. Um, You can't bring a coach back for a second and a third year who doesn't deserve to be back, who hasn't proven that he can handle the situation that's in front of him, who's costing you ballgames. And I hate saying this, but Kitchen's decision-making put the Browns on the wrong side of victory more times than it did in the right side of victory in games. And you just can't do that. You go back to the Steelers game. You can go back to the Broncos game. You can go back to the Seattle game and, and so forth. You could pick five games this year where decisions that he made affected how the outcome of the game came. And you can't have that on a negative side and expect to be kept. Uh, and going forward. And quite honestly, like I said before, I think he lost his team. I don't think he's lost the entire team, but I think this team going forward really wants a different voice leading it. I completely agree. I, I don't see a way you bring him back. There's no there's no way at all you bring him back. Um, and I just think it's, every, it's time for everybody in the Browns organization, the decision makers, to say, you know what? We screwed up. And yeah. I think, too, um, maybe Freddie Kitchens says, you know what, uh, I screwed up, too. I made some mistakes. And um, goes to Morales and be the, is a coordinator, as a quarterback's coach, and then uh, works his way back up again. Well, that's exactly it. And, again, I don't blame, you know, Freddie Kitchens for taking the job. No. And the day asked him to interview, they're the one who chooses to hire him. Uh, you know, the responsibility of what happened this season lies beyond what just Freddie Kitchen did during on Sunday afternoons and Monday nights and Thursday nights. It goes it, it goes to the organization that made the decision to hire him and that's on John Dorsey and and you know, yeah, this it appears to come down that, I was gonna yeah. say this comes down to that you know, I, in the end, the veto power goes to the to the ownership. No matter what, I mean, if the ownership wants a change, they're going to make a change. If the ownership doesn't want to make a change, like what happened when, you know, Jackson was the head coach, that's what happens. You keep the head coach. Uh, you can't, you can't make those decisions. You know, you have to make good quality decisions for your organization going forward. And the Haslam's have had trouble. Their best thing they did was hire John Dorsey. John Dorsey's biggest mistake was hiring Kitchen. Yeah. It's- uh, it's uh, this time everybody says, you know what, we made a mistake, and almost appears to me that uh, you know John Dorsey was so almost afraid to mess with Baker's rhythm and continuity um, that the coaching candidates last year for the Browns, uh, you know, it was. Freddie or Greg Williams, and that was it. You know, no outsiders are going to be considered because I think he was like, oh, we can't give a whole other playbook to learn. We can't, you know, and then in turn, uh, this just uh, turned out to be a complete dumpster fire. It's, um, it's, I know for Browns fans, it's it's going to be mind-boggling how you take two steps forward and then three steps back, and then uh, the same dumb mistakes are still uh, costing you ballgames. Well, you know, going into the season, I've flat out said it's playoff or bust for the, for the, uh, yep. for the 
Browns this year, and it was bust. I mean, bust. you may not agreed with that going in that statement, but that is where they're at, and that's where they're going to be this off season. And the changes that they're going to make are going to be uh, a big part of the story going forward. And like yes. I said. Come Monday morning, I expect the Browns to be in the market for a new head coach, and it needs to happen. Uh, it's, it's just sometimes you have to cut the cord, even if it's after one season. You hate doing that yep. to anybody, and I'm not a big fan of that, but there are times where it's the correct move. And that happens in all sports, at the in the NBA, in the NHL, in the NFL and Major League Baseball, uh, managers have been fired into the first year of a big contract. It, it does happen. Um, sometimes you got to cut your losses and move forward. Yeah, this is, I think uh, that's where the Browns are at. Yeah, this is a results-oriented business, and the results are not there. And I think Freddie Kings will acknowledge that the results are not there. He was hired to win. There's no excuse with this with this um, staff not to the staff with this team and talent not to win and um uh, he's failed yeah yeah so, be interesting to see if any of the coaches that last year that they interviewed uh get a second interview this year or they go with a whole new group uh um, yes. you know uh last year of course you know uh Flores from the, the defensive coordinator for the new england pa- patriots Brian Flores was uh, interviewed, and then you had uh, uh, the Saints uh, tight end coach Dan Campbell was interviewed, and you know Kevin Stefanski, the offensive coordinator for Minnesota. It'd be interesting to see if any of them, if the Browns do make the move, which yep. everyone expects them to move, or re-interview this time, or it will be a whole new group of of people being interviewed. As mentioned, some of the former NFL coaches that are now available, like. Mike McCarthy, a former Packer, has a, obviously a yep. a connection to Dorsey, and then you know someone off off the radar and out of the NFL like a Urban Meyer. We'll just have to wait and see. Uh, maybe they go after the Golden Goose like a uh, Dabo Sweeney. Yeah, which, you know I don't expect him to leave the college game, but you know again, coaches sometimes love that opportunity to. Uh, to challenge themselves at the highest level. We'll have to wait and see. Yes, I completely agree with that. Well, the Indians continue to make moves this off season, and uh, we say goodbye to maybe the greatest pitcher that you and many people have seen in their lifetime in Corey Kluber as a Cleveland Indian. Yeah, it's, um, you know, I know a lot of people are split on this um, I just isn't a trade Kluber, and look, and rightfully so. It's a two-time Cy Young Award winner um, who carried, who single-handedly carried a beaten and battered and banged-up pitching staff in 2016 to Game Seven of the World Series um, that you or I will never forget. Um, and um, but. Tim, I think you kind of saw the writing on the wall um, last year uh, when the Indians, were, whether it be them or other teams, were dangling Kluber's name out there of possibly being on the move last year. It uh, didn't happen um, because Brent Kona said, he said, if we lose Kluber and um, Bauer... Um, we're we're not going to be very good next year, and he, you know, so and you lost Kluber, you lost Carrasco, you lost Bauer, and you lost Mike Clevenger, and you still won ninety three games. And I think uh, Kluber's contract uh, being seventeen and a half, eighteen million dollars. Um, to me, this was a salary dump. Um, the Indians. Uh, freed up $18 million, um, and Kluber became expendable because Aaron Savali and Zach Plesak and, excuse me, and Jeffrey Rodriguez and Adam Plutko all took big steps forward, as did Shane Bieber, as did Mike Clevenger. Um, so 
your depth that you you thought you had in the farm system has come to fruition. We still have not seen the top pitching prospect yet in Tristan McKenzie. Um, so uh, with that contract uh, and the Indians trying to Tim payroll, it made sense. I know people aren't high on the return, um, but it's a salary dump. Uh, the Shields, sixth in baseball last year in stolen bases at 24. Um, he hit 275 with runners in scoring position, something the Indians did not do at all last year well. I uh, was sit with guys in scoring position. Um, it gives the Indians outfield depth after losing Naquin. He won't be back till August if he comes back this year at all. Uh, Puig is gone. Um, he's a guy that can play center field, um, who is a above-average defender, and Tito loves that. Um, and he's a guy that can bat leadoff for you, and I think um, that the Indians, far as they keep Linda, which I believe they will, um, you want to get Frankie out of the leadoff spot because you want to get him in a situation where he can uh, drive guys in. So, And then uh, Emmanuel Clace, who pitched some with the Rangers last year, but uh, mainly in AAA, um, has all the raw talent. We all know the 100-mile-per-hour. He can top the radar gun um, with some commands. Uh, the Indians have not had a pitcher in the bullpen in quite some time that can blow it by you with that kind of heat. I mean, uh, you'd have to go back to the 90s, Tim, to find a guy in the Indians' bullpen uh, that had that kind of heat. Um, so... Uh, and then with the freeing of $18 million, the Indians go out and sign uh, Cesar Hernandez, who I think is an absolutely great signing, a one-year $6.5 million deal, um, a guy who at 280 and played in 161 games each of the last two years. Um, he's a good defender. Um, he, he, he can throw you some bags, and he can hit anywhere in the lineup. He's a switch hitter, and Tito loves a switch hitter. So... Uh, I think yeah. it was a good move. Yeah, I, well, here's the thing. I look at it, this as the Indians being the Indians organization take away the salary dump part yeah. of it. Um, the Indians are a proactive team, meaning they will live by that theory of trading a player one year too soon versus one year too late now. And that has been part of their M.O. going back to Cliff Lee. Mm -hmm. where they traded Cliff Lee with two years left before he became a free agent and ended up with... Uh, Jake uh, Westbrook, too. Right. And yeah. what ended up with what we're doing now with uh, Carrasco in mm -hmm. that trade. So, as for Class A, uh, Emmanuel Class A is going to be an interesting ball player to watch. Obviously, as you mentioned, a golden arm that could throw at 100 miles per hour. Uh, never played a full season at the Major League level yet. We'll just wait and see. Uh, obviously, with the new rule changes this year, the Indians are going to need players who can uh, challenge hitters, uh, you know, coming out of the bullpen, because if you come out of the bullpen, you're either going to have to close out an inning or face a minimum of three batters. Yes. So it's going to be, you know, a totally different type of baseball we're going to see. I honestly don't think it's going to affect the game time at all. If it does, it'll be microseconds. It will not be minutes, and it will not be... Uh, a major change. I think baseball is going to be very disappointed in the end because I personally believe this rule change is going to lead to more runs. And once players get on bases, the game's going to slow down even more. Uh, that's just my humble opinion going into that. But if you told me the Indians would only get a a a reliever who has potential to be a closer going forward and a reserve outfielder for Corey Kluber, I would have said I was shocked. And I could say I'm shocked that that was the most they can get for a two-time Cy Young Award winner, a guy who last pitched a full season in Major League, won 20 games. Um, yeah. But that's baseball today. And baseball is a lot about analytics and numbers and getting value for a player. And 
I think last year they couldn't find the exact value that they were looking for. And when they got into the market this year, they were looking to make moves. And quite honest with you, as you said earlier, the Indians do have uh, depth in the pitching staff at the uh, minor leagues and players coming up. We've seen three of them last year pitch very well at different times for the Indians. And, you know, Plesak and others coming through will be a huge part of this uh, team going forward. Uh, obviously, Savali is going to be a big part of the. Uh, you know, both of them are going to have opportunities to make this opening day uh, starting ro- rotation next year. So it's going to be interesting to see where it goes. And the bullpen is going to be totally rebuilt, as it is almost every year. And we'll go from there. I, I honestly... Like I said, I was kind of surprised at the level of what they got in return. But I also see a 34-year-old pitcher in Major League Baseball being traded. And not many people take a chance on a player coming off an injury to his pitching arm, even though it was broke and then an oblique injury. They say Mm -hmm. everything's good and he's healthy, and he probably will be and, and perform well for the Rangers, who are also looking to make an impact as they move into a brand new stadium this year. And Kluber will be pitching in, indoors there, so that'll yeah. be yeah, that's going to be yeah, that's a big thing. How it works. Exactly, and you know, quite honest with you, for the Rangers, it's it's a good deal on their part because they get a starting pitcher who probably can throw close to two hundred innings, mm-hmm. uh, who you know is only going to cost them about eighteen million dollars each season. That's not a horrible thing for them going forward as they try to uh, compete in the AL West, which is a very difficult division to compete in. And uh, we'll see. I mean, I see from their vantage point why they were willing to make the trade, and I can see why the Indians got what they got. Um, Like I said, if you told me three years ago the Indians would end up trading Kluber and get a relief pitcher and a backup uh, outfielder, I would have said you're nuts uh, for that. Now, trading him, no. I would not say that would not have been out of their wells because the Indians do that. As for Lindor, we talked about this uh, towards the end of last season. I said, this comes down to a Dolan's decision. And we all kind of figured the Dolan's decision would be to trade the player. Uh And that's where we're at. When he gets traded, we don't know. Uh, Do I expect Lindor to be traded? Absolutely, 100%, yes. Yeah. I'll be more shocked if we're talking about this going into next season uh, than, we, than if he's still on the team at the end of this season. Uh, either he'll be traded now between uh, spring training and opening day, or he'll be traded at the trading deadline. But I will be shocked if next offseason we're talking about it. The only reason we're talking about it next offseason is the Indians make a huge run this year and get into the World Series or just coming up short of the World Series uh, type scenario in a seven-game ALCS uh, move. And, you know, that's putting the the cart way before the horse, so we'll just have to wait and see how this season uh, transpires. But for the Indians to trade, a starting pitcher only pitched, what, seven starts last year before his injury? And yep. like you mentioned, won 93 games without him for the most part. And uh, I understand it. It makes sense. It's it's a it's an analytical move. The Indians are very famous for uh, being uh, unemotional in trades and making plays, and they, that's the way this team is built. This organization is built on bringing in talent from other organizations. They have developed some, and when it has happened, they've some of them have risen to the level of a uh, a Lindor you know, or a uh, Ramirez. Others have peaked at certain times in their careers, like a Kipnis did. And as you can see, Kipnis, a 32-year-old second baseman, they've moved on from. This is how the Indians work. Yep. The Indians uh, want players under 30. They truly, truly do. They like players under 30. They don't mind veterans in certain positions. And they will pay for that veteran if he fits into the lineup in their budget, but they're not going to overpay for that veteran. And just the way it works in Cleveland and the way they design their operations, uh, like it or not, I, you know, like I said before, what I signed, if I was 
owning the Indians, but I'd probably get Lindor signed for a, for a six to ten year contract. Absolutely. Uh, would I pay what the Colorado Rockies are paying Alonado? Yes, and, and others. I would not be afraid to to offer and try to get that that deal done. But that's not what the Indians are going to do. So yeah, uh, I, I accept it for what it is. I, as you brought up, uh, Cesar Hernandez is a uh, a terrific young ball player who has experience and. You know he's a two. He's a solid guy. He's going to hit two eighty. He's going to drive in close to seventy five RBIs. Uh, as you mentioned, a switch hitter, a good defender. Uh, he fits right in in the Indians' mode of what type of player they're looking for. And quite honest with you, uh, if he has a WAR of two point four or better, like he has had most of the years in Philadelphia, that is going to be a huge improvement over Kipnis point zero five the last two seasons. Yeah, it's uh, it's. Uh, uh, definitely an upgrade, and it's um, a price cut too. I uh, was getting paid uh, close to sixteen million dollars, also. So, right, uh, yes. you, you made fourteen last year, and you're yeah. now your second mate could make an under seven, so half of that. Yeah, yeah. So, so it, it is, it's it, a, it's a smart, a smart, heady move uh, by the Indians uh, that are sticking true to their form. Yeah, they make a non-emotional decisions, nope. and uh, as nope. fans, we're allowed to make emotional decisions. We're allowed to be attached to a ball player and get upset when they get traded, like a Kluber, or if Lindor's mentioned in trade. But the Indians are not in that mode. They're a professional baseball team, and under Chris Antonetti and, and Chernoff, they're very much driven by what they're able to do and the budget that they're given in, and they'll make, you know, the best decision possible that to go going forward. They're not 100%, but they have a really good track record. Yes, they do. Yes. And um, you just put uh, complete faith in them, and uh, they've proven that um, they will do what's in the best interest of the ball club, and if they need to go for it, uh, they'll go for it. Well, look at it this way. Terry Francona has never had a losing season as the Cleveland Indians manager. No. And he's would, uh, had, what, Four seasons in a row, it might be five, but four seasons in a row of ninety plus wins. Yeah. yeah. Uh, so again, so you they're doing something chance. right. Yeah, yeah they're doing they something right. They're doing something right, and it doesn't always work. Uh, for example, the extension to Kipnis when they gave it to him, he had about you know twenty sixteen was his last decent year, but twenty seventeen and eighteen uh, were not great years. Nineteen were not great years, but. You know, it was what it was, and you move forward. Um, and that's the chance you take with long-term contracts. Sometimes they work out, sometimes they don't. Yep. And uh, and when they don't, and you can't, and then I think the Indians had tried to move in the last two, three seasons. There just wasn't any takers. And it'll be interesting to see where he lands and what type of contract he gets. It wouldn't shock me if he gets a contract under $3 million a year. Oh, I'd be shocked if he even gets that now. Uh, he may get less, but I, I think he'll get about. To be quite honest with you, I was thinking about three to five, and now I'm thinking maybe three and a half or lower. Uh, yeah, I don't think I don't he'll think get he'll very get much now. Yeah, I don't think he'll get anything under two million. But that's basically what his years of service and minimum wage would be. But we'll wait and see. As for the bullpen, they keep making changes every year. We've lost a few from last season. Uh, no one to the point of like, oh, my God, it's not like you lost Miller. Uh, yeah. So we'll see how, how they do. The Indians have been traditionally good at finding uh, players for the bullpen that no one else wants. And uh, like I said, on the new rules, we'll see how it all works out and how much that deters uh, Fran Cunna going forward, how he manages the ball game, because we're talking about one of the best bullpen managers in baseball and now can't do what he does best and match up against uh, certain players one-on-one. So, yeah, it'll be interesting going forward. I'm looking forward to baseball season. I I don't think the Indians are done. I don't think the Indians are done and should be uh, intriguing to see how it goes farther. And uh, like I said, I don't want to see Lindor traded, but I've come to the conclusion it's going to happen. It's just a matter of when. It's not if, it's when. 
Yeah, we are uh, under 100 days until opening day. So yeah, uh, three months exactly today, four months exactly today, uh, we will be at the corner of Carnegie and Ontario again and uh, get geared up for another season of baseball. We're not that far away. Anthony, last chance to say anything before we say goodbye. No, just uh, excited to be exactly four months away from baseball, the uh, long, cold off-season. Uh, a longer off-season than we're accustomed to is almost over. Uh, so my focus after the holidays is uh, strictly on that now. Real quick here before I get off, the Liverpool Reds continue their winning ways. They have now won 18 of 19 ball games. The only one they lost is a draw. 17 of 18. Excuse me, 17 of 18. And they leave the Premier League by 13 points. They're up 52 points to 39. And next game on Saturday will be the halfway point of the season. If this continues, they could wrap up the Premier League championship maybe by the end of March, 1st of April. That sounds uh, similar to what the Indians did in the 90s when they uh, had a division wrapped up by the All-Star break. This is a juggernaut, and it's just begun. They won the FIFA Club Championship uh, this past week. Uh, winning two games in Qatar and brought home a brand-new trophy, added to the uh, trophy room as they continue to mount it. Now, let me tell you, this has been the best find of my life. Uh, I've uh, had extra teams now, or new teams, added to my, my favorite list other than in Northeast Ohio. And, of course, everyone knows I love the Golden Knights uh, out in Vegas. And I'm a Magpie fan down under with the AFL. But uh, Liverpool, it has been a joy. I went to watch them this afternoon over at the West Side Bowl with uh, the gang over there, and we had a blast. Ford Neal over Leicester, and it was just a phenomenal game. Uh, they, they're phenomenal. They are really are a juggernaut. And uh, I don't know if I'll ever lose. I'm, I'm just going to enjoy this. <laughs> That's all you can do. That's all you can do. It is. You'll never walk alone. Remember that. Real quickly, uh, before we get off, I made contact with Tom Reed. He is going to come on the podcast. We just got to get a time and date that works with him. And um, we will be talking uh, Premier League with him, and also we'll get a little Cleveland Brass talk in too because he follows that and anything else. And, of course, everybody knows Tom Reed. His days at the Warren Tribune, uh, Akron Beacon Journal, Cleveland Plain Dealer, and now one of the premier writers on The Athletic. All right, for Anthony in Canfield, I am Tim here in Borman, wishing you all a wonderful and joyous new year. Hope you had a wonderful holiday season. Merry Christmas to all those celebrated, and happy new year in the next week, and we'll talk to you all soon on episode 93 of the Sports Podcast.